Hello, friends. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. So glad we can be joining together in this online liturgy as we continue in our teaching series that we've called Transform. You know, in his analysis of some of the current challenging realities that we're facing in North America, a columnist, Ron Elving, points back to some of the profound and challenging historical moments that brought unusual unity. He points to World War II, how our own nation and then the Allied forces joined together in unity. The September 11 attacks, where there was this united grieving joining together, even Canadian airports welcoming and hosting redirected U.S. flights. But then Elving makes this observation. In dramatic contrast to the unity expressed when facing other historic challenges, the sudden emergence of a killer disease rampaging coast to coast has served less to unite us than to emphasize what divides us. And I think we can all recognize that those divisions have been seeping at times into the life of the church as well. In matters related to COVID, certainly, but not just in matters regarding COVID and its protocols, but also in politics, moral and social issues, doctrinal disagreements, relational breakdowns. Now, if it's any encouragement, uh, the presence of division among Christ followers is not anything new. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the church in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago, addressing divisions that were rising in that church. And listen to what he said to them. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as we hear it, friends, this is a word of God. Paul writes in verse 11, There is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or... I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And we kind of wonder, what would the names be in our day? I mean, so these Christ followers in the church in Corinth, I mean, they, they were quarreling with one another over whose faction, whose favorite was superior. And, and so to them, and to other churches to whom Paul wrote, like the church in Rome, Paul exhorted in contrast to the divisions that are present in our culture, we in Christ are to model a different path and pattern. So we ask, so what are our relationships to look like then in the church, in the body of Christ? And thankfully, Paul gives part of the answer in his letter to the church in Rome, specifically in Romans chapter 12, in our passage today. Because Paul, in these verses, he's talking specifically of our relationships within the church among fellow followers of Jesus. So let's hear what Paul says to us. So if you would, turn in your Bible or Bible app, and I would encourage you, perhaps, to use a physical Bible. I think it's helpful to see where a passage is in the whole story of Scripture. Personal preference. But let's come to Romans 12 and hear what Paul says with guidance to us. This is in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Paul says to us right off the top, let love in the church body be genuine. Now, that word genuine in the original Greek, it's a Greek word, enupokritos. And really, that word is formed from two other Greek words, an, which means not, and then the Greek word, hypokritos. Now, that was a term that was actually used in that ancient day to refer to an actor who would wear a mask to play a role in a particular theater or play. And so the actor was just pretending, Hippocrates, to be the person they were portraying in the play. And that's the place from which we get our word hypocrite. So Paul says, don't let your love be like that in the church. Don't let it just be pretense, not just a show, not inauthentic, not hypocritical. So we ask, so what does that kind of love, that authentic, genuine love, what does that look like in the body of Christ? And Paul tells us by giving one command and then 11 examples of what it looks like in our passage today. Because now understand this, the passage that we just read together, it can sound like Paul has given us really 12 different commands. Kind of like he's saying, okay, first, let love be genuine. And then second, abhor evil. Thirdly, hold fast to what is good and on down the list. Like it's some kind of to-do list with 12 different commands. Now, we don't catch it in our English translation, but there's only actually one command in these verses. Let love be genuine. And all the other 11 exhortations are actually just examples of what loving genuinely looks like, of how we're to love authentically. Because grammatically, all those other 11 verbs there, they are participles. Remember your kind of English grammar? I mean, here, a participle is a verb ending in ing. So what Paul is saying in this passage is, let your love be genuine. There's a command. By abhorring evil, by holding fast to what is good, by outdoing one another. So that's what Paul is explaining in this passage. So today, in the limits of our time, we're just going to focus on four of the phrases, four of the concepts we're going to unpack in these verses that Paul says are to mark us as a community of followers of Jesus. It's for us. How we're to walk with one another in this church family. Because understand, this is about us, about our life together. So four exhortations to guide us as we love one another genuinely. And Paul starts with this. For one, Paul says, how do we love one another? Look at verse 9. First, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We love one another by abhorring and holding fast. Which is kind of a surprise, isn't it? That the first example that Paul gives of how we're to love one another 
is abhorring evil? I mean, if someone came to you and asked, tell me, how do I love well? Would any of you respond by saying, well, first of all, right top of the list, abhor evil? Really? According to Paul, yes. And, and note this, Paul doesn't just say avoid evil. He says abhor it. And that word abhor, it means detest with horror. To put it another way, you tremble at the thought of it. Now, unfortunately, there's a tendency within each of us to entertain evil instead of utterly detesting it, right? In fact, a number of years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith made this observation. One of the major weaknesses in the church is a great tolerance of evil. We've practically established a peaceful coexistence with the works of darkness. So, obviously, to laugh at evil, to be entertained by evil, really, whether it's a movie or TV show or podcast, that's not abhorring it. And understand, although evil can certainly include overt sinful behavior, understand that what Paul is saying here, it also includes those things that undermine the true gospel of Jesus or those things that create division within the body of Christ. Now, there are several different words in the ancient Greek language for evil. But the word that Paul uses here, it's a Greek word, poneros, and it speaks specifically of relationship. That's what it's referring to. In other words, when I am filled with the Spirit of God, loving in a way that is genuine and authentic, I will tremble, I will abhor that which would wrongly wound someone else in the body of Christ. It's like I can't tolerate it. I, I detest it. And, and notice, Paul doesn't just say abhor evil, but he partners that principle with another. I mean, the kind of the flip side of abhorring what is evil is what? Verse 9, it's holding fast to what is good. That's what Paul is saying. And, and that verb, holding fast, it literally means to be glued to. It means I am glued to the attitude that Whatever I do for you or for whoever in the church body, I do it for your good, for your best benefit, for your spiritual help. This is what love without hypocrisy does. It abhors what would wound somebody wrongly and intentionally. And at the same time, it's glued to that which builds them up, which does them good and provides encouragement for them. So really, even in reading this, I've been prompted to be asking myself the question this week. Is there anything in my life where I'm actually celebrating what is against what God desires, what is evil? Because how do we love authentically? Paul says, begin with this. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Okay, and then a, a second phrase or concept that guides us in loving one another in the church. Because second, we are to be loving one another as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Okay, where do we see that? Well, look at verse 10. Paul writes, love one another with what? Brotherly affection. 
Now understand, that phrase brotherly affection, that is just crucial for understanding this whole passage we're walking through. I mean, brotherly affection, brotherly, sisterly love, in English at least, I think it's a fairly vague, maybe it just feels like a sentimental idea. And, and for some of us, I know this, for some of us, the love we received in our families was more wounding than it was uplifting. I mean, and understand, that, that's not the kind of love that Paul is referring to here, no. Uh, understand, even the ancient Greeks and Jews and Romans who observed the familial love that was practiced by Christ followers in the early church, even they knew how radical it was. The ancient writers actually wrote about how radical it was to say that every other person who's experienced the saving grace of God through Jesus is your brother or your sister. I mean, they just couldn't fathom it. And the thing is, even we lose sight of how radical a concept this is. So let me ask, have you lost sight of it? You know, the first words in verse 10, love one another. That's actually another word that describes familial love. It's actually, that phrase is formed from one Greek word, storge, and which is often translated as kind of a familial bondedness. It's just that unconditional family love, like the love of a mother for her newborn child. In fact, the British scholar and apologist, C.S. Lewis, uh, he wrote a great book called The Four Loves. And in the book, you might know, he explains that there were primarily four ancient Greek words for love. And each of those Greek words really described a different kind of love. So for one, there was philos, which was friendship. There was eros, which was romantic love. There was agape, which was a sacrificial serving love. And then the fourth type of love was storge. And storge is a word for family affection. Now, Lewis pointed out that storge had a particular beauty to it. Because all the other loves require some strength or merit, either in the lover or the lovee, either in the one giving the love or in the object of love. But storge, think of this, the love of a mother for her newborn child, that's different. You didn't really choose to love this way. It was kind of this automatic, natural, deep bond. That's what storge means. And so, what Lewis is trying to say is, think about your actual brothers and sisters that you might feel a loving bond with even though you would never have chosen a person like your sibling to be your friend. I mean, you get what Lewis is saying here? I mean, you didn't choose your sibling, but you love them. That's storge love. Storge love, it's that sense of deep connection and bondedness that there is with people who are just part of your life. There's this bond you have with them. And that bond, that connection, Paul is saying, is there among us in the body of Christ. It describes well how we are to walk with one another. Because we are to nurture that kind of love and express it as followers of Jesus with other followers of Jesus. You know, I can just testify in this, what a beautiful reality this is in the body of Christ across the nations. 
you know, one of the great joys of traveling overseas over the years, meeting with different church groups, different pastors, again, whether it was in Asia or Africa or the Middle East or Australia, Europe, wherever. But in these encounters with them, you come from different countries, often from different ethnicities, often with different languages, different backgrounds, different educations, often dramatically different life experiences. And yet, regardless of the nation, there is just this immediate bond together. It's like the differences don't matter. If there, there's truly the sense, this is my brother and sister in Christ. You know, I, I felt in many ways a connection with them and a love for them that I don't feel, even with people of my own nation or demographic or background who have not had that just paradigm-shifting experience of coming to know the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And friends, that describes us. That's to be us. That's the brother and sister love. That's to mark us. In our genuine love for one another, we are to be abhorring and holding fast. We're to be loving as brothers and sisters. And then a third declaration Paul makes Because Paul also says that we're to be loving one another transparently. You know, just think about family relationships. Because within a family, things usually are pretty transparent. You don't or you can't really hide that much because stuff in a family just tends to come out. So here's what Paul is saying. He's really in one way saying, remember, the church is not a social club. Because in a social club, you get together for a particular reason and you only really contact each other over that reason. I mean, let's just say, for example, we're part of an astronomy club. So we're in the astronomy club and you are there and and you want to talk about stars, celestial bodies when you get together. I mean, you talk to each other about constellations. But if in that club, if somebody came up to you and said, what are you dating that guy for? (laughs) He's no good for you. I mean, you're going to respond, uh, excuse me? I mean, that's none of your business. Let's just talk about the stars, all right? But in a family, in a family, who you date, what you spend your money on, all those things, actually, they involve the family. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, if the Christ followers around you are your brothers and sisters, then who you're dating, how you're spending your money and your life, those are matters to be shared together. You know, think back to verse 9. What does verse 9 say? Again, we just looked at it. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And we ask again, okay, what is that doing in a whole list of things about loving relationships and community? Well, another part of the answer to that question is... Christ followers are supposed to be holding each other accountable for the truth. Or they're not loving. I mean, you don't love somebody by letting them do something damaging, wounding, or wrong. So to have brothers and sisters, part of what that means is they have a responsibility to you and to different aspects of your life. 
I mean, it doesn't mean the entire church community knows every detail of your life. It doesn't mean that by any means. But it does mean that we each are to have others within the body of Christ with whom you are transparent, open, who you allow to speak words of challenge or exhortation into your life. Because in our love for one another, even here, that love is to be expressed by abhorring and holding fast, loving his brothers and sisters, loving transparently. And then a fourth element, the final one we'll just look at here today. We're to be loving boldly. Loving boldly. Because right in the middle of all this talk about community, you find an interesting couple of exhortation that Paul gives in verse 11 and 12. Look at what he says in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Okay, now if these words were written somewhere else, I mean, we might think Paul was talking about how you should, in some general way, keep yourself spiritually fervent in your life. But since these words are right in the middle of Paul's exhortation to brotherly love and right in the middle of the call to share with God's people, what this means is, if you take seriously what the Bible says about your relationships with your spiritual brothers and sisters, you will find yourself often fairly exhausted. What? Yes. I mean, just look, for example, look at what Paul says in verse 15 of Romans 12. He puts it this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mean, that's actually saying, it's assuming that there's an involvement, an emotional identification so deep that is what is happening to others around you in the body of Christ, it affects you. And it's interesting the order Paul puts it in. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and then also weep with those who weep. And we kind of ask the question, so why did Paul list them in that order? And I think it could be because... Rejoicing with those who rejoice is often a lot harder. You know what I mean? I mean, when someone is weeping, when somebody's in grief, there's kind of a leveling that comes in that reality. There's this shared commonality. They're, they're brought low in grief. You could say in some ways it's more of a shared experience. But when someone is rejoicing perhaps experiencing some success or triumph or victory or blessing, that can often be more challenging to join in celebrating because it's often much harder to rejoice with your Christian brothers and sisters who are actually doing better than you are or whose lives are going far more smoothly or fruitfully than your own. That can be harder, but that's genuine, authentic love. That's loving boldly. I mean, what Paul is saying is that you can't live detached from your spiritual brothers and sisters. You and I, we are called to be involved with one another. We are called to care. So when they're hurting, we're hurting. When they're celebrating, 
we're celebrating. That takes boldness. That's why C.S. Lewis would write on another occasion these words. Love anything, love anyone, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. So if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in its casket of selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, your heart will change. It will not become broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Here's the reality. To have brothers and sisters, to walk as brothers and sisters, that's not safe. It takes boldness, courage. It's being willing to have your heart broken, truly. And to have brothers and sisters means they are given to you and you have a bond in Christ with them. And truly, whether you like them or not. So how are we to be loving one another genuinely, even around here? Paul tells us in part, it's by abhorring evil, holding fast to what is good. It is by loving one another as brothers and sisters. It's by loving transparently and loving boldly. Which, friends, is precisely the way that the God of creation loves you in Jesus Christ. So will you join me in praying that that love would be expressed among us? Let's pray together. And Father, how we thank you for your grace and goodness, for the wonder of your love for us. And Father, I would pray by a work of your spirit, even this week, you would be molding us to be a community, a people, your church, that expresses vividly the love displayed in Jesus Christ. Guide us to that, Father. I pray for your healing, your grace, your movement among us, so that in us, you would be glorified. And we ask this together in Jesus' name, and all God's people say, amen. So hope you have an encouraging Thanksgiving, friends. And as you walk into this week, whatever it holds for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this week even, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.